Father in heaven, thank you. We praise you for your word. We praise you for your spirit. And we praise you today, Lord, that we will continue learning about putting on the armor of God. Lord, we are in a battle. We need your strength. We need your protection. We need your deliverance. Show us in your word what it means to be armed for warfare. Give us the victory, Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, Ephesians 6, 17 is where we are going to go. Ephesians 6, 17 uh, is where we're going to go. And this is like part four of the Put on the Armor of God series. We've looked at so many different pieces of the armor of God. And today it's just a two-point sermon. It's just a two-point sermon. We're going to look at the final piece of the armor of God. And then we're going to look at one more command uh, of what we are to do on the battlefield. And so in Ephesians 6, um, starting it from verse 10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of His might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Now then we've covered these pieces of armor. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation. And we paused last week, and today we're going on to the next part. It says, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So the first thing we're going to look at um, today is the uh, sword of the Spirit. So number one, you can write that down, for all the sword of the Spirit. Star Wars Mandalorian Season 2 just dropped on Friday. And how many of you watched Season 1 of The Mandalorian on Disney Plus? Now, the most exciting thing other than Baby Yoda in Season 1 was the sword that was revealed in the season finale. Here's a picture of the sword. It's called the Dark Saber. The Dark Saber. And this guy cut himself out of his TIE fighter using the Dark Saber. The Darksaber was designed to thwart the power of the lightsabers. And this weapon messes with lightsabers because it's like a black hole drawing all light into it. Here's a close-up shot of it. it. It draws all light into it, so it messes with the lightsaber. It was made by a Mandalorian Jedi, but Darth Maul at one point used it as well. And now, somehow, this guy, Moff Gideon, wields it. Here's a picture of him. And we're trying to figure out what he's going to do with it, right? This saber has killed many Jedi. That's how strong it is. It's a one-of-a-kind weapon that harnesses unfathomable power. But listen, it's not real. Actor Giancarlo Esposito said, in fact, while filming season two of The Mandalorian, he has broken three dark sabers <laughs> that have had to be replaced. Why? Why? Because they're made by Hasbro. You know, that's why. Today we're learning about the sword of the spirit, a weapon more powerful than anything you've ever seen on the big screen. 
And it's not a prop. It's an invincible blade forged in the furnace of God's eternal spirit. It's an indestructible weapon. Nothing on earth can break the force of its power. And you must learn to wield it if you hope to win your battles against the forces of darkness. You must draw the sword of the Spirit. Well, what is it? It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13 captures this truth. We'll put that up on the screen. Here's what it says. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The power of God's word is evident within the human heart. It cuts through to the truth of our reality. You can't stop it from driving straight through to the heart of your condition. Found in God's word are laws that we have broken, promises that we can claim, historical realities of God's activity in history that we can believe. All of that confronts the darkness within us. And listen, there is darkness within us. The Bible says that there is a battle against the worldly desires in our soul. And it's the word of God that gives us the victory in this battlefield. Let's face it, there's a fight on the battlefield of your mind. How you're thinking about yourself and your God and your life and your church and your family. Your mind is a battlefield. And it's the word of God that is going to win that battle. When you know Philippians says whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. Your heart is a battlefield. Your emotions, your reactions, your desires, your fears, your relational longings, your emotions can drag you off the safe trail of God's word, and it feels good, and it feels right, but it's so wrong. And the Bible can give you the victory in your heart over your emotions that are driving you away from Christ. So we believe that the word of God is divine revelation. Caught up in the canon of scripture is no earthly book. This was written down by men but the Bible says that it is God-breathed, which means it, was, it came from the very lips of God. When you read your Bible, you read God's lips. This is a book that bears divine authority, and therefore it is powerful. It is powerful. Jot this down. It is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And because it was handed down from the Spirit through the messengers, it's of heaven, not of earth. It is the word of God. In Isaiah 55, 11, it says this. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In 2 Timothy, Paul talks about how he's in chains. He knows it's the end of his life. He's not getting out. He's telling Timothy, it's my time. He said, but the word of God is not chained. It's unstoppable. It is the word of God. Jeremiah 23, 29 gives us a few images of what God's word is. Jeremiah says this, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Like a fire that consumes what is worthless. Like a hammer that breaks 
stubborn strongholds to pieces. That is the word of God, the sword, the fire, the hammer. It's powerful. And in John 5, 39, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The word of God is about Jesus. And David Bruskis once said that the Bible is not a, a, a book of rules to live by. It's a book about a person to live for. A person to live for. It is the word of God, and Jesus is the word made flesh. In Revelation twenty two nineteen, 19, there is a great warning assigned to God's word. It says this, If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So many people today go through this book and they're like, like it? No. Yes? No. I'll do that, but not that. If you take anything away from this book, you're not going to heaven. You have to believe that this is the divinely revealed word of God. You are under it. It is not under you. It must master you. And in Psalm 1-2, it tells us what our relationship should be like with this book. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. We love it. We love the law of the Lord. It's, it's priceless like silver and gold. We cherish it, we treasure it, and we know how to wield it. So are you reading God's word? Are you knowing God's word? Are you applying God's word? Are you ready for battle? Do you have a battle plan? It's always good to have a battle plan when it comes to God's word. <clears throat> I remember when I was first saved, I didn't know the Bible. I didn't know the Bible. And I went to church and a woman, nice dear old saint, came up to me and I had long hair and I was wearing a black leather trench coat and I was just this new Christian. And she's like, do you have a Bible? And I'm like, I think I've got this old Catholic Bible that I got when I was a kid. It's got like cartoons in it. She's like, oh, here, take this. And she gave me a study Bible. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> and so I went out and bought a cover for it. And then I started reading it over my frosted flakes in the morning. And at first I was like, wow, I know a lot of people who are doing all these things wrong. And I'm going to go tell them about it, right? <laughs> And then God worked on my heart, and I started growing in my faith, and I started finding out what pleases the Lord. Hey, when I got saved as a freshman in college, I didn't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New. Maybe you feel like that's where you're at right now. You don't even know the Bible. Hey, I was there. Don't let that discourage you. Have a plan. Read the Bible. Learn the Bible. Once I started learning the Bible, I joined some Bible studies, and then I learned more about following God, and um, then I started memorizing verses, the ones that I wanted to carry with me, and then I eventually started teaching a little Sunday school class with kids, and, and I was like, I'm helping them to know God, right? And then uh, we planted a church, we just helped to plant a church in the western suburbs, and as I grew in my knowledge of scripture, I eventually I became a deacon there. I'm like, I'm a deacon, and uh, I realized that I had to get a Bible education when I felt called into ministry. So I applied to Moody Bible Institute downtown. Then I started to take classes at a seminary, at a Bible Institute. And I started getting graded on papers I was writing about the Bible. And I loved it. And I, I learned God's Word at a professional level. And then I became a youth pastor, and then I became a senior pastor, and now I get to preach it every week. But listen, that started with me opening up this book and saying, I can't even say half these words. 
So if you, wherever you're at on that continuum, don't let it discourage you. You can know God's word, you can read God's word, but you have to have a plan. So my plan this year is I'm reading through the Bible in a year. I know that that means I've got to get through about 100 chapters a month. I track it. You know, I was about 20 chapters behind yesterday, so I'm catching up. Uh, you can say I want to read through the New Testament, or I want to read through the Gospels, or I want to camp in a book, like the Psalms. I'm going to be in the Psalms all year. But if, if, yes or no, do you have a plan? Yes or no, do you have a plan? And if you don't have a plan, today's the day to nail one down, okay? But what are you going to do between now and January 1? What's your plan? Maybe you say it's the Psalms. Maybe you say, if you want a book about suffering, read 2 Corinthians. All right, get into 2 Corinthians. That'll pick you right up because Paul shares all of his problems. All right, as you're reading about his problems, you'll be like, wow, mine aren't so bad. I'm glad I'm not him. Uh, whatever you want to do, read, read the book of Mark. It's the swiftest gospel that tells all the stories of Jesus' miracles. Hey, have a plan. And don't trade the word of God for anything. Open it, learn it, read it, and cling to it. Too many Christians don't know the Bible, and they have traded it for what? What have they traded it for? They have exchanged it for worthless, worldly wisdom. And instead of knowing God's word, they know what they've heard on social media. They've got a collection of sayings and phrases that they've picked up but it's not God's word. They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Did you know in the late 1980s, Russia had a major national crisis? Do you know that? Well, they had many. But one of their problems was they ran out of Pepsi. They ran out of Pepsi, and the people wanted their Pepsi. The problem was they couldn't use their worthless currency to buy the Pepsi. So they said, well, what do we have that we don't need? And they made a deal with the soda giant this is not a joke. They traded a fleet of warships for pop. <laughs> 17 subs, a cruiser, frigate, and a destroyer for $3 billion worth of Pepsi. Pepsi momentarily possessed the sixth most powerful mili military in the world. <laughs> and then they sold it to Sweden. Listen, Russia traded its weapons for Pepsi. For Pepsi. And Christians are turning over the artillery of God for pool noodles, for worthless wisdom of the world, for things they believe that makes the enemy, you're coming at me with that? Where did you get that, Instagram? She's got a lot of followers. All right, bring it on. They have exchanged the sword of the Spirit for worldly dogma, for sweet-sounding nonsense that pleases the world but that contradicts the truth handed down from heaven. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Listen, Christians, this is the weapon of God. Don't exchange it for sugar water. Draw the sword, know it, love it, wield it. It is the word of God. And then jot this down. Follow the example of Jesus. Follow the example of Jesus. The Bible doesn't just tell us about the word of God. It shows us its power. And we read in the, in the Bible about Jesus being tempted by Satan himself. It was the ultimate showdown. For 40 days, Satan and Jesus went one-on-one -on -one in the wilderness. 
Jesus was all alone, tempted. How does God, an eternal member of the an eternal member of the Trinity, defeat a fallen angel, the prince of darkness? Well, first Jesus was fasting. And the first temptation, do you remember what Satan told him to do? What did he tell him to do? Turn these stones into bread. This is Satan's first shot at God. Do you think it was a throwaway shot? Turn these stones into bread. Bread, 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 bread. Do you think, do you think Satan knows what he's doing? Yeah. What was the first thing he wanted to do? Break that fast. Break that fast. And where did he aim? The stomach? Where did Satan aim in the Garden of Eden? You look hungry. Take and eat. It starts with your base desires. If he can get you to be self-reliant and godless and indulgent with your base desire, things you need, things you want, then he's got a beachhead. He doesn't first go, oh, you can't trust the authorship of Paul. He, you think that's where he starts? You look hungry. You look lonely. You look afraid. I've got something for you. What did Jesus do? Immediately quoted the scripture, Deuteronomy 8.3. It is written that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God. Then what did Satan do next? Took him to the pinnacle of the temple. Throw yourself off. And then what did Satan do? He quoted Psalm 91. Satan knows how to wield the sword too. Never forget that. He knows the Bible better than you. He can get you all twisted and turned around if you're not careful using the Bible, using someone who's using the Bible. Because he masquerades as an angel of light. Why would he tempt Jesus to throw himself off the temple? Well, he was testing whether or not God loved him. He was testing whether or not God would keep his promises. Perhaps even with this great grand effort, Satan was trying to get Jesus to hurry the program along, do more miracles, let people see that you're the son. Hurry this up. Jesus again wrote, or quoted Deuteronomy 6.16. It's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Then Satan took him to the highest mountain. And offered him all the kingdoms of earth. This can all be yours. And no cross. I can take away your suffering. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 6.13. Worship your God only. Serve him. Quote scripture. Quote scripture. Quote scripture. That's how God took out Satan. You think you got a better plan? You think you got a better plan? It's this Bible. It, it was Jesus' only hope and it's your only hope. You must draw the sword of the Spirit. You also must watch out for those who quote the Bible but deny or disregard the truth found inside. Hey, listen, a false teacher or a popular blogger or an Instagram influencer who disregards teachings in this book and doesn't live by it should not be influencing you. You've got to watch out. Well, how do we apply God's Word and know it? Well, 1 Peter 1.23 shares the starting point. It says this, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Hey, have you been born again by faith in what you've heard in this book? There are many different belief systems out there, but only one can save. Have you gotten to the point where you realize, based on what you've heard from heaven, that Jesus Christ is the Savior and the Lord, the way, the truth, and the life? Have you, for the first time, grabbed onto this sword and allowed it to slice through all of the enemies inside of you? The darkness, Satan, and death. 
Have you been saved by faith? This is the only weapon that can save you and give you life. If you believe Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and you've trusted him to forgive all of your sins, then you're holding on to the sword. But maybe you don't even have it yet. Maybe you've not even surrendered to that yet. Maybe you are opposing that truth to this very day. And you're on the wrong side. James 1.22 says this, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So have you publicly testified of your faith? And then are you learning increasingly to put this word into practice? Has it changed your behavior? Is it forming your thinking in your words? Not perfectly, but increasingly are you bearing fruit as found in this word. And then Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Is this your way? Is this your way forward through this crazy world? Hey, number one, draw the sword of the Spirit. Be saved and sanctified and guided and comforted by this book and no other truth. Then it goes on to say this. It goes on to say this. The sword of the Spirit, verse 17, which is the Word of God. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me. So number two, jot this down, pray without ceasing. Number one, draw the sword of the Spirit. Number two, pray without ceasing. Prayer is communication with God. And there we are in the battlefield, and sword drawn, and we have an uplink to heaven. We, we have a comm link with HQ. We can talk to God. And, and in his word, we can hear from him. And the first thing in any war, that the first objective in any battle is to destroy and disrupt the enemy's communication lines. And that's Satan's goal for you too. He's got to get you to stop praying. He's got to get you to stop listening. He's got to get you to stop fasting. That's where he went with Jesus and that's where he'll go with you. But we have to pray without ceasing. And it says to pray in the spirit. This just shows that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us as we're saved, illuminates God's word, leads and guides and directs us as we hear from God. And when we pray, the spirit groans on our behalf. The Holy Spirit, the person of God who lives within us, takes our Bible reading and shows us the way of God, takes our prayer and brings our requests to heaven. We have an advocate, and therefore we can be confident that this is powerful. Too often, Christians don't pray, and it's because they feel intimidated by prayer. I don't know if I have the right words. When people start to pray, they start changing their voice. Dearest thou, Father, what are you doing? Fine, it, this isn't 1611 in England. Talk normal, okay? You don't need the these and the thous. You can just talk to God. Tim Keller wrote a whole book on prayer. He said several things that were so encouraging. He said this, prayer is friendship with God. It's that simple. Prayer is friendship with God. He says too often people don't feel like praying. And he said this, recognizing your spiritual emptiness is the beginning of prayer. So you kneel down and you say, Lord, I don't even feel like praying. That's my starting point. And that's a good starting point. 
He also talks about how throughout history Christians have debated. Is prayer wrestling with God to get something you want? Or is it resting in all that God is already going to do? And he said, it's both. These are like two trees growing in your prayer life. You are wrestling with God. You have not because you ask not. You are wrestling with God to persuade him to do things. And not my will, but thine be done. You are resting in God. At the same time, it's not only rest. Well, God's going to do whatever he's going to do, and I don't even care. I'm just, it's not just that. And it's not just wrestling. It's both. How are you doing at resting in prayer? How are you doing at wrestling in prayer? Pray without ceasing. Well, how do we pray? Well, jot this down. Ask for guidance and direction. Ask for guidance and direction. You remember Joshua? Joshua fought the battle of what? Jericho. Big battle, big city, thick walls, right? And, and do you remember, where did he get his battle plan for the battle of Jericho? Do you remember? He went to scout out the city, and who did he see? The angel of the Lord. And he fell down on his face, and the angel gave him the battle plan. Here's the battle plan. You're going to march all the way around the city. Check. That's it. Oh. Then you're going to do it again the next day. Check. And that's it. Oh. And then on the seventh day, you're going to march around the city seven times. Check. And then you're going to yell. Oh. Can we fire one arrow? No. Can I bring one slingshot? Nope. You're just going to yell. The trumpets can sound too. That's it? That's it. That's the battle plan. That's the battle plan. All right. And it worked. They yelled and the wall fell flat and they had a total victory. He got the battle plans on his knees. Are you asking the Lord for guidance and direction? He will give you guidance. He will give you direction. Where do you need in your life right now guidance? Lord, I am not sure which way to go here. Where do you need direction? Lord, I'm not sure which road to take here. I need some direction. I need some guidance. Are you praying about it? Are you praying about it? So we went to Arizona, I, I said that, uh, and we had the chance to do some hiking, which is really cool. Uh, hiking in these uh, Arizona mountains is, is rugged. There's a lot of boulders. There's some soft gravel. There's cactus. There's, uh, so it's kind of rugged. And so we did a couple of hikes by day. And then several years ago, one of my pastor friends, uh, Matt, got us all up before sunrise and we hiked one of these mountains in the dark. And there were a bunch of us. And it was so cool to watch the sunrise from the top of one of these mountains, you know, 2,400 feet up. So I said to Lauren, I'm going to go tomorrow. And I texted a few people. And then I woke up, went down to the parking lot. I was the only one. And I'm like, well... <laughs> do I do it? Am I going to get eaten by a coyote? You know, I'm like, well, I remember. Anyway, so I decided to do it. So it's 5.30 a.m., and I go to this mountain. It's, it's pitch black. And thankfully, there were a bunch of other crazy people who were doing it, too. And so I started hiking this mountain, and I couldn't see anything. I mean, it was, I had this little flashlight, and I couldn't see anything. Now, we had just hiked this mountain two days earlier, and there were several times where I was, and it takes an hour to get to the top. There were several times where I stopped and I was like, I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> there's a pile of rocks there and there and there, and they all look the same. And there's no one around me. 
because the locals go a lot faster than me, right? So I just like stood still and tried to, I couldn't see the signs. So I took a little video of what it looked like. Here's a video of, of the mountain. Check it out. And all these little lights are people climbing the mountain. You see them off in the distance? Are we halfway? No, no. She said, are we halfway? <laughs> no. <laughs> are we halfway? No. And, and so here's a picture of the trail signs by day when you're going up. They mark the trail. And you're getting up really high, but by night you don't see anything. So you're just like, I think I'm, I, I'm not sure. And I really needed that light to try and find out, find a little reflector. Or to, or, and then when other people came by, their light was on, and so I would follow them, right? And then the sun started coming up, um, and here's a picture of the sunrise. Uh, finally, it came up, and there we were, we were at the top. And boom, the light just all shines and fills the whole horizon. And here's another picture of me, triumphant. I did it. I got all the way to the top. Um, now look, in Psalm 119, 105, we'll put that verse on the screen. It says this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I barely could make progress with that tiny little light. You know, this is what God's word is. I don't know where to go, Lord. Give me guidance. Give me direction. This is what you're doing. Lord, okay, do I go this way? I need a trail sign here. And God's word acts as those trail signs. So I need guidance. I need direction. You're praying and you're in the word. And God's word gives you direction. Don't go that way. Get back on the path here. That's not the way for you. And if you follow it, you'll get to the top. And then the light will break through and it will all make sense but you can't give up. Ask for guidance and direction. Jot this down. Ask for strength and victory. Ask for strength and victory. So God's going to guide you. He's going to direct you, but he will also establish you. You can pray and call down an artillery strike in the fight for your family, for your children, for your marriage, for your finances. God, I need a win here. I need some strength here. I, I need you to give me more backup here. I'm going down. You, need, you might need an artillery strike for your own faith. Lord, I'm sinking here. And you can pray for that. Too often, Christians wait till the last minute. Prayer is a last resort. Prayer is a last stand. You have to know when it's time to call for help. You have to know when you are outgunned. And you are outgunned. We all know history, right? Have you heard of Custer's Last Stand? As the plains was being, there was a battle on the plains between the Indians and the cavalry. And Custer, one of the most successful uh, commanders over the army in the battle with the Indians, went out to the Battle of Little Bighorn in Colorado. It was June 25th, 1876. He had 700 men. 700 men with him charging out to battle on horseback with their swords and their guns. They did not know that 2,000 Indian warriors were waiting for them. They did not know that. Led by Crazy Horse, Sitting Bull, and other Indians with names like Brave Wolf, Crow King, and Thunder Bear. Would you fight a guy named Thunder Bear? Indian scouts warned Custer that they had never seen such a large gathering of Indians before, and they were right. Members of the Lakota, the Dakota, the Sioux, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho had all gathered for one of the largest Indian sun dances ever, a festival and a buffalo hunt. 
They had all their wives and children present, so they would be determined to fight to the death. Custer knew none of this. The U.S. 7th Cavalry Regime Regiment split up, thinking it would be easy to surround them, and only too late did they realize how strong their opponent was. Listen, only too late did they realize how strong their opponent was. And now Custer, with his 200 soldiers, realized they were hopelessly outnumbered. They fled up to the top of a hill. They were surrounded, and they were massacred. 200 men dead because they didn't know the power of their enemy. And Christian bodies lay strewn all about the battlefield because they didn't know the power of their enemy, and they didn't pray for help. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you three months into the battle with Satan where you're like, I need help. Too late. Where were your prayers three months ago when you were getting massacred by the enemy? I thought I had this. I didn't think I needed God. Too late. Too late. It's also important to know when you're asking for strength and victory where your trouble is actually coming from. Here's a helpful chart. We'll put this up here. You've got to determine if your problems are coming because God is disciplining you or because he's pruning you. So the issue on the left, the indicator is you're facing pain. That's true for both a process of discipline and a process of pruning. But why? Are you doing something wrong or are you doing something right? You have to admit if you're doing something wrong and understand that's why your life is so hard. Listen, if you're doing something wrong and that's why your life is so hard and you're not admitting the truth, you're not going to win the victory. But if you're doing something right and your life is so hard, you might need to say, this really shouldn't be happening. And understand that you're in a process of pruning. What about the fruit? Well, in a disciplinary process, you have no fruit or little fruit. That's why the problems came. No fruit of obedience or repentance. In the pruning process, there's plenty of fruit. You're, you've been doing a lot of things right. Still, your life is going wrong. God's pruning you. What does God want? Well, if you're in a process of discipline, he wants fruit. He wants you to do the right thing. If you're being pruned, he wants more fruit. What needs to go? If you're being disciplined, you've got to get rid of your sin. Your pain will not end until your sin goes away. What about pruning? Yourself. You've got to get yourself out of the way. Your comfort. What do I feel? Remorse or relief. I feel relief during a pruning process because God's simplifying my life. What sh how should I respond? Repentance or trust. When does the process stop? When you're being disciplined, when sin stops. When you're being pruned, whenever God says. It's important to know why life is hard. And then you can ask for strength and ask for victory in the right way. Last, write this down. Ask for comfort and healing. Pray without ceasing. Ask for guidance and direction. Ask for strength and victory. And ask for comfort and healing. Listen, you will be wounded in this life. Deeply, deeply wounded. Even if you're doing the right things. Life will be hard. Prayer is a place to go for comfort prayer is a place to go for healing. Sometimes, I, I told a woman in our church once, she was telling me about all the things she had gone through recently, and I said, I think God wants you to learn how to lament. She said, what is that? I said, it's where you just sit down with God, and you bring him all of your pain, and you ask him to help you with it. She said, he wants me to do that? Yeah, there's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Sometimes God, like a good father, just wants you to come to him. Did you have kids? Don't you just want them to call you sometimes and to tell you about their problems? 
is to share it with you. God's like that. Have you asked for comfort and healing? On this retreat, Rochelle, you know Rochelle, she's been here several times leading worship. She was there and she shared a really powerful message before one of the songs. And she said, this song has a verse about wine. And she said, I, I looked up winemaking to figure out what it means to, to know that God can, can produce wine in a, in a life uh, as a symbol of what God's doing. She said, I learned that in the winemaking process, grapes first must be carefully selected when ripe and picked without damaging them. Here's a picture of grapes being picked. You have to carefully pick them. Uh, you can't bruise them or on the way to the next step, they could go bad. You have to carefully pick them when ripe. That's what God does with us. And then they gather them all together, and when the time comes, then they are all crushed. Here's a picture of grapes being crushed. And you will be crushed in this life. It's part of the process. After the crushing comes the fermenting, where they allow many temporary foul and strange odors to escape. Does that sound like your life? The fermenting. The fermenting. Then comes the filtering, where chunks are removed from the mix. Things are taken out. Then comes the aging, where it's just left on a shelf. Just left on a shelf. Does that feel like life to you? Process of winemaking? That's what God does to us. Why would he do that? Because he's making you into something valuable. Do you know in 1998, about 2,000 bottles of 1907 uh, Heidsick wine were found aboard a Swedish ship wrecked off the coast of Finland. It was a 1907 wine. Germans sunk the ship in 1916. It went down in 1916 during World War I. When they recovered uh, these bottles of wine, they were so valuable because they had been sitting at the bottom of the sea for 84 years. One bottle sold for $275,000. Cost per glass, $55,000. Why? Because it just sat there. Because it just sat there. Isaiah 53 says it was about Christ. It was God's will to crush him. When you look at the cross, it was God's will to crush him. And think of the blessings that came to the earth once that process was over. And it is God's will to crush you. But there is a divine purpose for your pain. And listen, prayer is where your heart is purified. Where your soul is sweetened while you wait. Prayer is where you become something priceless, pure, and fit for the finest occasions. Are you praying? Pray. Hey, number one, draw the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. Follow the example of Jesus. Number two, pray without ceasing. Ask for guidance and direction. Ask for strength and victory. Ask for comfort and healing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you beckon us into your Word and into your presence through your Spirit. Lord, I pray that this week you would meet 
your people in powerful ways in your word. Give them encouragement. Give them direction. Give them clarity in your word. Correct them in your word. Comfort them in your word. May they know that as they're reading from this ancient book, that your spirit is right there ministering to their soul. I pray for some who maybe have never submitted their lives to the word of God. They have never believed what they've heard about Jesus Christ. They have never given their life to the one who died for them. I pray that today would be the day that they say in their own heart, Jesus, be my Savior and my Lord. I believe the word I've heard from heaven. Save me forever. And I pray that their path through God's word would begin today and that you would put up those trail markers, keep them from danger, show them the right way, light their path in the darkness. And I pray this week, Lord, that as we cry out to you for comfort and healing, for hope, for correction, I just pray that you would help us to not resent the process. Lord, I, I remember feeling so convicted years ago, just feeling the, the question being asked to my soul, what, what do you want? Do you want me to become unnecessary or do you want me to become supreme? And Jesus, I pray that as we lift our hearts to you this week, you would become supreme through our problems, through our needs, through our desires, through our fears. Lord, we wouldn't want to delete you by taking all of our problems away, but may these problems give you tremendous glory. And whether we are in the pruning or the crushing or the fermenting or the waiting process, Lord, help us to know that you are transforming water into wine. You're transforming us into something precious forever. So we pray and humble ourselves before you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.